are listening to a podcast from The National. In the world of finance and financial decision-making, information is key, and accurate, unbiased information is king. But with a plethora of publications, experts, commentators and influencers all jockeying to make themselves heard, how do you sort the wheat from the chaff and find sources of financial information that can be trusted? This is the National Business Extra podcast. My name's Chris Nelton, and today I'm joined on the line by Omar Al-Obaidli, a financial economics expert at the think tank Derasat in Bahrain, and we will be attempting to unpick the knotty issue of media coverage in the finance sector. On the subject of, of uh, how mainstream media and financial expert commentators voice opinions uh, and advice, perhaps a good place to start is, is with the coverage in some sectors uh, of the recent anti-corruption drive in Saudi Arabia. As that developed, there were well-respected people in, and it must be said, primarily the Western financial media, who said it would adversely affect the creditworthiness of the kingdom. In fact, the opposite happened. Uh, the move boosted transparency and, and raised international perceptions of the strength and safety of the Saudi financial sector, as evidenced by the you know the big rush of, of major international investors getting involved with many of the enormous projects the country has announced as it moves away from oil dependency. So the question is, how did those commentators get it so wrong? And perhaps more pertinently, why did they express such opinions? First of all, to reiterate um, your point about the, the, the international community, investment community reacting positively, or at least definitely not negatively, the, uh, if you actually look at what the leading credit agencies, um, S&P, Fitch, and uh, uh, Moody's, have reacted, their reaction has either been no change, or in the case of, I believe it was uh, S&P, they, in, the, in the credit report that they gave afterwards, they sort of said that this is something which is probably going to be positive. Yeah. This was some, some mid, mid-November. But no, you know, they, they do, uh, all the credit, agent, credit rating agencies um, are, are capable of issuing sort of rapid reports if they think there's been an important, especially yeah. adverse development. They haven't done that, and, mm-hmm. and that's a clear indication of what people who know what they're talking about and who have an incentive to tell the truth think about the situation. So then going back to your question, Mm -hmm. uh, uh, seeing as, you know, the international community is convinced um, uh, that that this is not a negative thing, and in fact it's something that's positive, why Mm. would so many respected people go out their way to something negative? Mm. I'd say it's, uh, uh, first of all, a lot of the people that we may attach weight to are actually just normal journalists. Um, mm-hmm. You know, um, uh, they're not. Uh, I'm not going to name any names, but <laughs> they're, they're people who, um, uh, who who don't actually have an expertise in finance. They have an expertise in journalism, and and they you know they listen to what people say, but really they're not people who have uh, uh, the an understanding of the fundamentals necessary mm-hmm. to make an assessment of something as complicated as the investment climate mm-hmm. in Saudi Arabia. Mm-hmm. Um, and unfortunately, with a lot of these uh, uh, normal journalists. They tend to, you know, they tend to have a negative opinion of Saudi Arabia because, yeah. you know, Saudi Arabia is not—it's not exactly the darling uh, of the left-wing media. Most of these journalists have never been to Saudi Arabia. Mm-hmm. They have no interest in going to Saudi Arabia. Uh, all they see, uh, or many of their perceptions about Saudi Arabia, are completely, uh, 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 completely outdated. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, yet, as I say, they have these sort of latent biases, which are which are quite mm-hmm. common in the media against. Mm-hmm. Uh, against some of the Gulf countries, sadly, and uh, and and it, and it manifests itself mm-hmm. in in some of these negative reports. But that's among the people who I would say are talking mostly out of ignorance. Yeah. But then yeah. you get people who are in the know, who uh, who who go out of their way to 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 you know put out misinformation. Why mm-hmm. would that happen? Mm-hmm. Well, if you take the case of 
um, uh, Saudi Arabian investment at the moment. There's two, there's two sort of big projects on the horizon, Neom and uh, the Aramco IPO, especially the yeah. Aramco IPO, yeah. where the, we know it's coming, but it hasn't come yet. Yeah. Um, now, if you're one of these investors who wants to invest in, 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 uh, in, in, in Aramco or in Neom, uh, it, it, there's a serious conflict of interest when your expertise is, uh, is tapped by a journalist. You want people to think this is a terrible investment because that way, when the opportunity becomes available, you'll get it for a cheap price. Mm. Um, conversely, after investment has been made and you're actually into the investment, then you want to do the reverse. You want to sort of uh, uh, exaggerate its, uh, uh, its value because at that point you want the price to go up in case you want to sell. Yeah. But prior to these huge investments becoming available, um, there is a fundamental conflict of interest. Uh, uh, and that's why you'll see many people who are in the know, basically, with a wry smile on their face, uh, uh, will, yeah. will, will happily uh, disparage the Saudi economy in an attempt to secure a good deal for themselves. And of course, that, that rule applies not just to Saudi. I mean, it, it replies, obviously, it applies to any, any big investment anywhere in the world. I mean, that, that, uh, that makes sense. But So given, given that, that those biases are latent, as it were, um, do you still think that, that the media is, is a good source of information for, uh, for potential investors, you know, be they smaller, less, less able to uh, arm themselves with, um, you know, enormous budgets to look into uh, the, the viability of, of investments or not? In terms of being a source of advice on investments, I would say in general, not, nothing particularly informative. That doesn't mean there's no point in reading, mm. but uh, generally speaking, uh, um, you know, the, the, the maxims for investment for medium term to long term investment are pretty clear. Uh, there's a, you know, diversify your asset portfolio mm -hmm. and, and there's no such thing as sort of easy money. The, the value of the media in these situations is just sort of to, is, is keeping you up to date on what's going on mm -hmm. uh, because, you know, that's not the only function of publications such as the uh, giving investment advice and investment tips is not the only function of publications no, sure. such as the Financial Times. Most of the time, people are reading the FT or the Wall Street Journal because they just want to know what's going on. Um, but they're not going to be particularly useful for investment tips because, as I say, um, the the uh, uh, the good investment tips are tips that you're going to have to pay money for, and mm -hmm. you know, they pay a lot mm -hmm. more than um, you know <laughs> one dollar for a copy of the Wall Street Journal. Um, uh, and that's why a lot of people do pay a lot of money mm. uh, for good investment advice uh, and then act on that investment advice. But by the time something's in the public domain, it's really not going to be something that's very useful to an individual. Mm. So uh, particularly in the case of investment advice, then is there something that makes that um, specifically different to, to, uh, to other information uh, that is available? Yes, absolutely. I mean, if you look at, um, you know, we, we, we're used to seeking the advice of experts in, in, in a wide variety of domains. We speak to lawyers, we speak to accountants, mm -hmm. interior designers, uh, everything under the sun. Um, the difference, the thing that makes finance distinct is that usually um, the experts, are, when they're giving you advice on an issue, your, your decision on uh, uh, regarding your response to their advice has no effect on them. Mm -hmm. To give an example, if, a, uh, if a, an interior designer tells me Oh, I think this, you know, this vase from IKEA is beautiful, and you should consider putting it in your house. Mm -hmm. Whether I buy 50 or 100 or zero isn't really going to affect this interior designer's uh, well-being in any material way. Uh, in fact, the way they earn their living is by cultivating a reputation for giving good advice on interior design issues, mm -hmm. and and so it's neither here nor there for them. So yeah, there's, there's no, no, no conflict incentive. of interest. Yeah, no fiscal exactly. incentive. Exactly. Whereas in finance, which is quite unique. 
um, there is, um, first of all, dissemination of information is mm -hmm. critical to, to, to their well-being. Um, as I mentioned, prior to an investment, you want to keep good information secret. Mm -hmm. um, after you've made an investment, you want everybody on board. Uh, and this is very different to the sort of incentives that a doctor faces when the doctor is giving you advice on how to treat an illness or, 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 um, or a personal trainer is giving advice on how to lose weight. Uh, they don't have this uh, situation where they can gain from you making a decision in a certain way. Mm. Well, there are some small conflicts of interest where, you know, for example, a, a lawyer might want you to keep might want you to take something to trial or not because it affects their fees. But these are very small compared to the kind of fundamental conflict of interest that exists in finance. At the end mm. of the day, if I've got a good stock tip, why on earth am I telling people about it? I, I should just mm. be acting on it myself. And mm. the fact that I'm telling you about it should raise your eyebrows and make you think that, hold on, um, yeah. What's going on here? Yeah. So, given that it's it's um, you know so difficult to get impartial in, uh, advice, um, if you happen to be lucky enough to find you know a diamond in the rough uh, who, who does such a thing, the the other problem I guess is that by the time they've imparted this advice, it's effectively useless. Yes. So this is this is what's known in in economics as the efficient markets hypothesis, and it's what. Uh, Eugene Fama, uh, um, a professor at the University of Chicago Graduate School of Business, won his Nobel Prize for a few years ago. Mm. Um, basically, the idea is that because capital is very liquid, I can shift my assets around very quickly. If um, uh, the uh, markets adjust almost immediately to new information entering the public domain, uh, which eliminates any advantage. If you want to have an advantage from information, then that information has to be um, circulated in a very narrow circle, um, and that's uh, you know that's where you people are willing to pay a lot for good mm -hmm. advice because mm -hmm. uh, it, it's advice that you're guaranteed to be circulated in a small circle and you can act upon. Whereas if you getting if you're opening the Wall Street Journal or turning on the nine o'clock news and hearing about something, by the, by the time you've read about it, already the price has adjusted. Mm -hmm. People have real have, have, have taken into account the. Um, the uh, the value of this information and, and, and incorporated it into the prices of assets. Mm -hmm. So, given that, then um, you know, why does anybody read the Wall Street Journal, the FT, or, or similar? Should we not just you know cancel all finance sections and papers and and ignore them on TV? Well, as I say, the, the if if, I, if if the if you're only reading the Wall Street Journal, Financial Times for stock tips, then I'd say absolutely cancel your subscription. <laughs> but that's not really what people are reading them for. Uh, most of the time, people are reading the, these publications for, uh, first of all, because they just want to keep up to date on news, general news, mm -hmm. not because they want to base a specific uh, you know, investment action mm -hmm. on it, but they just need to know what's going on in the world. Um, and secondly, you know, there's, there's a consumption value. Some people enjoy reading the opinion articles, the op-eds. Yeah. Uh, they derive entertainment value. But if you think, if, if you actually go through the readership, I think you'll find uh, no no rich, successful investor who's buying these publications in in in, in an attempt to uh, acquire useful stock tips or, or something along those lines. Mm -hmm. It's it's driven by people enjoying reading and keeping up to date with what's going on in the world. Yeah, and I guess the other aspect, of course, uh, particularly with the Western media, um, is. They're owned in general by by individuals. Um, you know, you, you look at the Times or you look at uh, the Mail and, and, and stuff like that. Um, so, is there not an inherent um, bias uh, built into coverage in certain circumstances, whereby bear, you have to bear in mind the the owner of of the publication uh, with regards to how you might um, present financial information that could 
have an effect upon the owner? I mean, does, does that not lead to a situation where the idea of when it comes to financial um, reporting, true free uh, press is something of a misnomer in those cases? So, I mean, there's absolutely the possibility that um, the ownership of a certain publication could lead to biased reporting, uh, and, and, and we, you know, we see that. Um, uh, in, we've seen many cases of that historically. But I'm not too concerned about that for two reasons. Um, first of all, the market for, uh, for uh, or people value accurate information and unbiased information, and there's an open market uh, in media. Um, especially now with you know with blogs with the online media before you know media was quite a closed market mm-hmm. um, it was diff- you know it's not like anybody could set up a, a publication but now you can set up a publication very easily online and, and garner a huge following mm-hmm. uh, and there's you know and there's many people in that it's, it's a it's a very pluralistic market so mm-hmm. maybe for example uh, the assets under News Corp or Murdoch might you know lean a certain way in a certain, in a certain direction mm-hmm. for certain uh, uh, pieces of information. But that's fine as long as I can, because I'm not forced to buy only News Corp uh, mm-hmm. products. Uh, I can go and buy, you know, if, if, I, if I'm a Democrat living in the U.S., I can read, I can watch Fox, I can watch MSN, I can watch CNN, yeah. you know, so, so all the options are there. Mm-hmm. Bias becomes much more of a problem when in the absence of competition, in the yeah. absence of uh, free entry, uh, and today, although there are problems with fake news, on the whole, I would say media is a very competitive market. Yeah. Uh, so you will, if you want to find accurate information, it's there. Yeah. Um, moving, moving back to fake news, I mean, presumably there is, um, with, with the rise of the Internet generation, and there's going to be, a, a, or is already, a whole crop of, of um, potential uh, investors and entrepreneurs who will use... Um, the internet, rather than turn to the to reading the, the FT or, or, or the uh, the Wall Street Journal for financial information, do do you think um, that there is a, a real risk of fake news causing uh, major headaches for the unwary? And if so, how how should um, a young uh, investor um, moving into the field um, best arm themselves against the possibility of, of falling into that sort of trap? Well, at the, at the level of the market um, for finance, I don't think fake news is a problem because. The people who, you know, even though there's a lot of inexperienced investors, mm. you know, 99% of the capital in the markets is, is owned by people who are experienced investors. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so they will know, um, they will have a much more discerning eye and are much less likely to act rashly mm. uh, in response to a fake news. But... Uh, that does, uh, that still leaves a possibility that uh, that a, that a fresh-faced investor uh, might fall into, you know, for example, somebody who's looking to save for their pension, yeah. uh, putting some money away, might fall into a, a, a fake news story and uh, and lose a lot of money. Yeah. Uh, in that situation, as I say, I think the uh, the, 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 the it's the same advice. Uh, you know, as an economist, I get asked to give investment advice all the <laughs> time. Uh, the the it's the same advice. Uh, there's two pieces of advice I give everyone, which are first of all. There's no such thing as easy money in, mm. a, in a systematic way. You know, people, less, setting aside people who do <laughs> insider trading, yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, there's, there's, there's this perpetual dream that, you know, and now it's been re- resurrected with Bitcoin, <coughs> that, you know, with a couple of smart uh, dis- investment decisions, you can become a millionaire tomorrow. Mm. But mm. I would say, look, you know, you need to get that idea out of your head. Uh, and really, there's nothing better than... Um, investing in uh, in, the, uh, in the right sort of diversified stock portfolio, some bonds and some uh, a little bit of real estate, because uh, because once you realise 
um, that there's no quick money and there's a lot of people who are trying to make quick money by making you lose a lot of money, yeah, yeah. Um, you, you become insulated to, uh, to, to the ill effects of, uh, of, of fake news. Yeah, just just by way of a, of a, a, a sidetrack here, what, what's your your uh, take on Bitcoin? Do you think it's it's kind of bottomed out? Do you think it's going to find stability? I mean, we have regulations coming in that that um, some say will again getting back to you know financial commentators. Some say like Goldman Sachs say it will kill it and and it will be practically worthless fairly soon. And you have others like um, you know the Vinkelos twins who are, who are um, you know embracing regulation. Um, and see it as as a positive thing. What's your take on the situation at the moment? So, in general, I think um, Bitcoin and all the uh, and all the different you know new um, uh, cryptocurrencies are, are a great development because uh, for uh, for many centuries um, uh, we've had a situation where money has been uh, monopolised by uh, central banks. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, with um, uh, and unfortunately, that can lead to some um, uh, some. Uh, Poor choices by monetary authorities, which uh, which affect uh, normal people very adversely. Mm-hmm. We've seen, you know, throughout the last two, three, four, five thousand years, there's been many debasements by governments who've uh, who've not been acting and have been acting in the interests of a small group at the expense of general society. Mm-hmm. And, and what things like cryptocurrencies do is it opens up um, the currency market and lets it be a competitive market in the same way as. You know, I can buy bread from whichever grocery store yeah. I want, or I can buy a car from whichever manufacturer I want. And generally speaking, comp- open competition is a good thing. The U.S. actually had uh, a period of open banking where anyone could make their own currency uh, uh, through, I think, the 18th and early 19th century. And, and it had many, many positive uh, effects. Yeah. But having said that, uh, so yeah, so as I say, so then I think, so as a consequence, I think it, uh, cryptocurrencies are fundamentally valuable and are a good, good development. Mm-hmm. But in the in the short term, unfortunately, because there's uh, people keep on falling into this trap of I can make you know a quick buck. Yeah. Uh, 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 people are going to get taken advantage of. Um, my understanding is that I think Facebook uh, recently banned That's advertising right. yeah. of, of cryptocurrency because you know there is just too many people taking advantage of naive yeah. investors. Yeah. Yeah. But you know that's why I actually agree with the Winkle uh, Winklevoss twins that yeah regulation is going to be a good thing let's yeah. streamline that. The most important thing is to keep the market open and competitive, um, uh, and to protect uh, uh, to put in protections uh, that, that stop people getting yeah. wiped out. Uh, um, but overall, um, I think the value will stay volatile for the next few years because um, one of the advi- one of the services offered by cryptocurrencies is as a store of value. Mm. And as a store of value, uh, it's still uncertain to what extent it will be able to deliver that, and therefore that creates volatility. Also, the other service it provides is a medium of exchange. You know, I think yeah, I've heard some places have started accepting Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies as payment. And again, it's not clear to what extent people will, uh, you know, various establishments will accept it as medium of exchange. So as long as these its main sources of value are fundamentally volatile, its uh, its reported value will remain fundamentally volatile. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I guess going completely in the opposite direction, looking back, um, you know, to, to, to the beginnings of, of, of investment, let's say we take a period like, um, say, the 17th century in, in uh, England. 
where were people getting investment information and financial information from then? Because, I mean, there weren't things like the Wall Street Journal or the Internet, obviously, and, and, uh, and other things. And yet there was a healthy and, and thriving investment community. How, how did it operate? And what, what did it do then? And are the fundamentals of that process still, still um, underpinning the, the general system today? So, I mean, my um, my specifics on that era um, are, are not as uh, as not as deep as, the, as 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 what's going on at the moment. Mm. But my mm. sense is that uh, interme- first of all, financial intermediation uh, intermediaries were much more important, uh, mm. personalised financial intermediaries. And by that, I mean people would go to uh, uh, would have trusted uh, uh, brokers uh, who, and, and you know, the job of a broker wasn't just to execute. Um, or, or uh, facilitate trades. It was actually someone who would gather information and, and give merchants. You know, if, if I'm a merchant and you and, you, uh, and I own a ship, yeah. sorry, if I'm a, if I'm an investor and own a ship and you're a merchant and you come to me, the intermediary has a very important job in in in, in uh, ensuring us, ensuring both sides that there's uh, that they're trustworthy to spreading knowledge about people who are yeah. um, uh, bad investments. Uh, and yes, finance was a lot more personalised in those days. Yeah. It was a lot less institutional, and as a consequence, people did get. You know, there were people were subject to fraud, were yeah. subject to very bad investments. People would get wiped out, uh, uh, unfortunately. So it's basically a much more primitive version of what exists today, yeah. um, with a lot more emphasis on personal networks uh, as a way of uh, uh, guaranteeing or helping overcome. The in, in problems of imperfect information. Yeah, it's it's obviously it was a system built um, that relied heavily upon on trust and trust that that was built over up over a period of time. In today's situation, particularly for the you know for the the small personal investor, um, it's extremely difficult to to gain any sense of of, of whether a, a financial advisor could be um, can be. You know, effectively trusted. I'm not saying that they're fraudulent, but but that the advice they give is is generally uh, genuinely um, uh, impartial. I mean, personally, I've found it almost impossible to 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 you know any of the the, the major firms to to get the feeling that they really were acting in my interest. Um, yes. Is that how how do how does a small investor get round that problem of actually gaining? Um, information where they don't feel that there is um, the potential that that it's not necessarily in their best interest. Where do you go? Well, first of all, with a small investor, I'd consider uh, speaking to a large organisation because mm. um, when you're speaking to a large organisation like a bank, mm-hmm. um, you're such a uh, an insignificant uh, com- component of their uh, overall portfolio. It's almost it's not it's not even their, worth their time. You know, potentially sacrificing their reputation in an attempt to, you know, steal a, few, yeah. to, you know, <clears throat> get you to make a bad investment which yeah. they would benefit from. Whereas if you go to a small, if you get something very personalised, then then you run that risk. Where, for yeah. example, if you spoke to me uh, and I was managing your investment, I could personally make a lot of money at your expense. Yeah. But if I was representing HSBC or you know, uh, yeah. so I'd say first of all go to a large organisation where the temptation is going to be much lower. But secondly, as I say, I think that people um, are are, are, underest- are overestimating um, what they can the value of what they can get from the from from the person who's going to be giving them advice. Yeah. They still people still um, are seduced by this dream of there being easy money. Uh-huh. There isn't. You know, uh, yeah. we saw with Bernie Madoff, um, uh, he tricked. Um, you know, the, the, this huge the, Ponzi scheme. Most, yeah. Huge, yeah, his Ponzi scheme. He tricked some of the most 
famous and, and respected people in the in Hollywood in, mm-hmm. in America, charities and so on and so forth. Uh, and uh, and you know the, he 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 knew one of the ways he was able to trick so many people is that he didn't give them a ridiculously high rate of return. He kept right. it reasonable. Yeah. Um, uh, and and people need to realize that a reasonable rate of return is more or less as bad as they is as good as they can get. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I think fundamentally people need to stop tuning in to hear about how much some how someone just became a bitcoin millionaire yeah. and thinking that there must be some sort of template which they can uh, uh-huh. which they can copy sometimes uh-huh. there's just no substitute for those boring 3-4% annual rates of yeah. return yeah. um yeah and yeah basically either be lucky or do your homework Unfortunately, be fraudulent. There's insider trading, um, and yeah. again, well, that does yeah. seduce some people. Obviously, it doesn't apply yeah. to most people. But uh, unfortunately, people, you know, will get approached by someone who thinks, "Look, I've got this. I've got a brother. I've got a cousin yeah. who's giving me this insider." And and you know that that is a, a an effective strategy as long as you can stay within the yeah. law. But yeah. uh, but that doesn't. Ha- you know, unfortunately, it's just it usually ends up in tears. Yeah, and obviously not one that uh, that anybody would promote. Um, so getting back to the media, um, we'll probably um, we'll wrap it at this. Um, it's it's obviously it's you know it's an extremely complicated landscape out there for anybody. Um, but do you, are there any rules of thumb that normal people can can use to help to distinguish between good and bad investment advice in the media? So I would say that the first question, the most important question, this uh, the reader uh, or the viewer or listener should ask themselves when they're receiving this advice is. Why is this person telling me this advice, mm. giving this advice? You know, what is in it for them? Mm-hmm. Uh, when I go to a doctor and, and, and the doctor tells me, you know, drink some water and, and, and sleep, um, uh, there's nothing in, in it for the doctor um, uh, in, in giving me that advice. Mm-hmm. Uh, and every incentive says is pointing in the direction of give Omar good advice, let him get better. Yeah. But when somebody's telling me, Omar, you can make a lot of money by doing one, two, three. Yeah. My question is, why are you telling me this? Why aren't you making all yeah. that money? Um, and if you're making all that money, why would you then come and tell me? Uh, and if uh, and if uh, some red flags start appearing at that point, uh, you should you should be very wary. So then, does that mean that there's no one would ever give you good advice? Well, yeah. I mean, then you need to look at a situation where, for example, it might be a, a trusted someone you trust, uh-huh. maybe you have a, a very good friend, maybe you have a, a close family member. Yeah. If it's somebody like that, then maybe you can take their, um, uh, take their advice at face value. But generally speaking, uh, uh, when you start asking yourself, why is this person telling me this information, yeah. you should end up at the conclusion that it's, it's, uh, uh, it's probably not a worthwhile investment yeah. Uh, yeah. Just, just on the basis of the, that they're telling me about it. Why aren't yeah. they just investing their money in it? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So it's effectively, um, you know, if it seems too good to be true, it probably is. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. This, 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 this dream continues and it's been resurrected by Bitcoin. <laughs> People think yeah. they can make money quickly. I'm afraid yeah. it, it's, it's not either you're lucky or, or, or doing something illegal. Well, thanks very much to Omar Al-Ubaidli for that journey through the complex world of the media's role in financial and investment advice. It's a tricky one at best. My name's Chris Nelson. That was the Business Extra podcast, and you can find us at www.thenational.ae and Apple Podcasts.